Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Jill Heinerth is a Canadian cave diver, underwater explorer, writer, photographer, and filmmaker. She is a veteran of over 30 years of filming, photography, and exploration on projects in submerged caves around the world. Jill is the first explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, recipient of Canada's Polar Medal, and is a fellow of the International Scuba Divers Hall of Fame, amongst other prestigious awards. It is an honor to welcome Jill Heinerth. Jill Heinerth, welcome to Let's Take This Outside. Good morning. Oh, good morning. <laughs> it's great to join you. You know what, Jill, you're like the fourth or fifth explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society that I've interviewed. And it was George Karunas who actually recommended you. Awesome. <laughs> What's your relationship to the other uh, explorers in residence? Oh, I mean, we're all friends now, um, you know, having met through the society, really. But uh, yeah, mutual admiration society. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think George calls it uh, like the Avengers. Everyone has their own superpower. Yeah, it's kind of funny because each one of us looks at the other and goes, oh, my God, I'd never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, can I ask what would you, okay, who do you look at and say, like, I would never do that? Like Ray Zahab or like? Yeah, I mean, I look at Ray and I'm like, my God, (laughs) I think I'm pretty resilient and have a lot of stamina, but holy mackerel. (laughs) Well, again, you're all your own Avengers. So and yours is cave diving, which is. Yeah. Okay, can we argue that it might be the most dangerous yeah, I one mean, of them. You know, a lot of people say that. And yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> so yeah. I just I dove in to your background and I saw that you you wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. Yeah, which wasn't really an, an option for you, right? Well, I mean, you know, I grew up at a time when we were watching these Apollo missions live in the school library on little black and white TVs and and. So, yeah, it ignited my imagination. But when I went running home to tell my mom I'd be an astronaut, she you know, quickly informed me that we didn't have a Canadian space program. <laughs> and, uh, and well, you know, there were no girl astronauts either. So <laughs> Okay, so two kind of strikes against you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm assuming you had that, like, exploration brain and, and yeah. that you've always wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been a curious kid and uh, really interested in, in exploration and, and sort of satisfying all those, you know, curious leanings. But I also have always wanted to, to be outside. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, my first career in life was in, in advertising. And as much as I love the creative process, I, I recognized very quickly that I could not live indoors, you know. I, I do want to explore that further. But let's go back to like your earliest memories of connecting with nature. Well, I mean, I grew up in a family that really valued being outdoors and hiking and paddling and exploring, swimming. But my earliest memory was actually of uh, crawling off the dock at our rented family cottage and and uh, floating face down in the water till it you know scared my mom <laughs> so you're always a water baby oh yeah totally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a classic cottage kid yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like. Uh, so you started you know floating scaring your mom is mm. um even as a as an adult was were your parents uh, just always terrified for you 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're like, you do what? <laughs> what, what do you want to do, Jill? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my mom and dad were both like, um, I don't quite get it. Like, how do you make a living? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it was funny is my next question was, at what point were you like, this could be a viable career? Like, at what point were you like, yeah, this is something I want to do and make money off of? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I sat in my you know studio uh, at my drafting table, so just surrounded by four walls that were closing in on me, it was more of a a situation of, of I have to make this happen. I didn't know how I was going to make it happen at first, but but I had the drive to uh, ensure my own success. <laughs> so you were a water baby, but were you taking like scuba diving lessons? When, like, wh- like what exactly put you on this path towards cave diving in the most like remote underwater locations? Well, I always loved being in the water and swimming lessons were, you know, a huge like thrill for me. I was always kind of you know, one step ahead, like, I can't take the next swimming lesson because I'm not old enough yet. And and so I did paddling and water polo and synchronized swimming and springboard diving and all kinds of things like that. But but my family knew nothing about scuba diving. So every time I brought that up, it was like, um, I don't think people dive here in Canada. It's too cold, dear. You know? <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember your first your first dive and where it was? Oh, yeah. I was working at a swimming pool as a lifeguard. And my boss said, oh, Jill, you know how to work the scuba gear, right? And I said, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fake it till you make it. (laughs) And they're like, oh, yeah. Well, can you, you know, jump in the pool? There's a bunch of broken tiles. Like, can you sort of map the damage in the pool? And I'm like, yeah. but so I go into this little closet to put together the scuba gear and and honestly I was sort of looking at it kind of like okay well air has to come out of the tank and get to me somehow so this part must match up with that part and (laughs) so you figured it out yourself like you didn't really have lessons yeah well no I did have lessons later but okay that was my first experience which was you know completely foolhardy You mentioned you're like, oh, is there that much diving in Canada? But, you know, we're both in the national capital region. And also, I know, like, I grew up in southern Ontario. Our family would go to Tobermory and the shipwrecks. And that's, you know, like crystal blue water. So what are some areas that you love to dive maybe more locally and, you know, not the Canadian Arctic, for example? Yeah. Well, I learned to dive in Tobermory. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. But it wasn't crystal blue water when I learned to dive, which is interesting. It's, It's changed a lot. You know, my first dives were, you know, it was it was reasonably clear, but it was much, much darker, like at 100 feet on the wrecks in Tobermory. We could only see, you know, a couple of meters maybe underwater. And now we can see, you know, 50 or 100 meters underwater. And that's due to invasive species, actually. <laughs> OK, I was actually going to ask you what what's OK. So to explain a little bit more, uh, Tobermory is this it's like a peninsula in like southern Ontario uh, near Manitoulin Island. But if you want to explain a little bit more about that area, and then I want to know more about the invasive species and why it's so clear. So Tobermory is in Lake Huron. It sort of separates the main Lake Huron from Georgian Bay, this little peninsula. And it's been a uh, a real you know fishing capital for a long time. And now it's Fathom Five Underwater National Marine Park. And there are shipwrecks everywhere there because it's 
sort of terrifying, you know, navigation through there with shoals and rocks. And, and of course, you know, the typical Great Lakes November storms that tend to cause all of these wrecks to sink. Uh, but when I learned to dive, visibility was very poor in the Great Lakes. And, you know, we could expect a couple of meters of visibility at, at best. So, you know, when I was learning to dive, there was a lot of kind of feeling around, where's my instructor? I can't see my instructor. And then some invasive zebra mussels started to appear in the Great Lakes in the uh, late 80s. And um, they're filter feeding organisms. They're tiny little mussels. And they filtered the lakes so effectively that there's unbelievable visibility now. But it's not a happy ending because they've kind of outcompeted native species and caused a bit of an environmental collapse. So yeah, we can see, but it's because the zebra mussels have eaten everything. So that's wild because I ignorantly have celebrated how beautiful it is there. You know, I've hiked along the Bruce Trail. I'm like, I'm about 35 years old. So like, even when I was a kid, it was pretty, you know, it was really clear and beautiful. But now I'm looking at it completely different from what you just what you just told me. Yeah, I mean, in ways, the lakes are cleaner than when I was a kid, because honestly, when we used to walk the beaches of Lake Ontario, we'd be walking through a lot of dead, crusty fish all over the beaches. There are good and bad sides to the health of our lakes. I mean, there's there are less pollutants in the lakes, um, but certainly the invasive species are a, a big challenge for us now. Yeah. You've gone, well, from Tobermory to, you know, uh, cracks and icebergs. You've gone places no one has ever been before. Caves with remnants of ancient civilizations, for example. You were the first person to cave dive inside Antarctic icebergs. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you go from like diving in Tobermory to doing these epic explorations that you were the first person in these in th these depths of the water? Well, I knew, you know, from my youth that I wanted to dive, but it was a matter of, you know, not just convincing my family because they were like, oh, no, that's a non-starter. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't actually get qualified to dive officially until I was in university and had raised my own money for classes and equipment and everything. But from that first dive, it's like I knew this is what I wanted to do. So a few years into my career, I was actually, you know, working in my little advertising company, but I was teaching scuba on nights and weekends. And it, it seemed like my whole life was revolving around how quickly I could leave the office and get into the water. <laughs> and, and so I literally sold everything. And I thought, all right, if I'm going to make a shift and figure out how to build a career as a diver, then I need to be in a place where I can dive a lot more. And so I, I sold everything and moved to the Cayman Islands. And first goal was just to build time in the water and improve my, you know, camera skills and and start figuring out how to <laughs> how to build a career. But but being pre-internet days, it was challenging. You know, I, I would write stories, take photos, print the images and mail them off to magazines in North America, hoping they would publish them. And <laughs> Who gave you your first shot? And did you find that like your background in advertising helped with writing properly and connecting. Yeah. So, you know, quite early on, I, I was doing all the graphic design work for the resort I was working at. And then I was also getting involved with the Cayman Island Water Sports Operators Association. So I started doing sort of advertising for some of the other resorts and using some of my images and that kind of kicked the door open. And so I was, some of my first assignments were for Skin Diver Magazine, which was the most popular scuba magazine at the time. And 
and uh, and I sort of branched out from there. But really, I think like the pivot in my career was really came from volunteer um, situations where I kind of plugged myself into interesting expeditions and organizations, worked hard, and then made connections that would help expand my career. Was there like a segment or an article or was there something where you're like, okay, I am, I'm doing this. I'm making a difference. Was there like a certain publication that you're like, yes, like I've made it. I made, I've made it finally. No, I mean, the life of an underwater explorer, it's so varied. <laughs> like, so like I'm a writer, I'm a photographer, I'm a consultant, I'm an instructor, I'm a filmmaker, speaker, all of those things. And so it, it means that I had to be a, like, a specialist in life support, certainly, and in, in camera operation, but a generalist in terms of other skills and, and finding contracts and searching for funding. But but I think one of the big pivot points was in like 1995 when I started working with the United States Deep Caving Team and Dr. Bill Stone and really admired the engineering and technology that he was bringing to the underwater environment and sort of built a very you know long-term working relationship with Bill and, and what eventually became Stone Aerospace. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside. Now has a newsletter. Keep up to date with outdoor news, events, and great discount codes and deals from our partners. Sign up today at letstakethisoutside.ca. So I want to go back to you diving inside the Antarctic icebergs. Sure. Don't know much about that. <laughs> to be totally honest, you're the, you're the expert here. But what was the what was the goal with that? Almost like take me through what a dive in the Antarctic might look like because you're using very special equipment. I'm sure for multiple reasons, including depth slash how cold it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it all began because my filmmaking colleague and I wanted to go to Antarctica and had an opportunity to pitch National Geographic with a project concept. And and we were going to pitch the concept of basically following in Shackleton's you know, path a hundred years after his his explorations because we had a few years to to work up to that. And then, as we were preparing, the largest iceberg ever seen on our planet um, calved away from the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica, and we were watching it on satellite photos. and And I had been sort of, I'd been really thinking about the fact that I was watching these cracks develop in the Ross Ice Shelf, and I thought, wow, yeah, I bet you could dive and 
in those cracks and crevices. Just wild. <laughs> we it's pitched... wild. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no worries. So we pitched National Geographic and said, yeah, we're going to be the first people to ever cave dive inside an iceberg. And they were like, there are caves inside of icebergs? <laughs> we're like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Wait, you were telling National Geographic that there was caves inside of icebergs? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they said, really? And we were like, hell yeah. But it was just a hypothesis. So... <laughs> <laughs> so they they funded us and uh, we went down on a wing and a prayer, made a horrendous like 12 day crossing from New Zealand um, down into the Ross Sea to intercept this iceberg. And uh, that in and of itself was terrifying. Sorry, what part of it is, is terrifying? Just getting there in general? Oh, yeah. Like 60 foot seas. <laughs> OK, got in it. In 118 feet foot boat it was um, really dangerous even ice coating the vessel and having to smash the ice off the boat with baseball bats and sledgehammers and yeah it was it was epic mother nature <laughs> but um i had uh, proposed that we would use a life support technology called rebreathers and they they were you know pretty new to the you know non-military non-commercial sector at the time but I knew this was the right technology for the kind of dives that we were going to do. It's basically the equivalent of a spacesuit <laughs> that an astronaut wears for a, a spacewalk. And I knew that would give us the time underwater and, and you know, the ability to, you know, um, have some setbacks, <laughs> I suppose, and, and, and have a lot of redundancy to get home safely. But the National Science Foundation had rejected our permit based on the fact that I wanted to use these rebreathers. But I didn't think the dives that we were going to do were could be safely executed with normal scuba equipment. So they had rejected our permit proposal. And we eventually needed to get a permit from New Zealand to travel there and use this technology as a as a first um, and it turned out to be the right decision. Um, I don't think we would have even survived the dives that we executed if we had not been using that technology. When you are diving, first of all, how deep are you going and like how long is the average dive? Well, there's sort of not really an average <laughs> dive, but I, okay. I, you know, I would say, you know, a normal dive might be at least an hour for me, but my longest 22 hours. So, yeah. Not like in a row. Yeah. How do you Okay, I have questions. Yeah. I have questions, Jill. How do you how do you eat? Yeah. So, well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions. Obviously, these dives are not done with a single <laughs> scuba tank. Again, we have to use that rebreather technologies. Yeah, so that we have enough to uh, to breathe first of all. <laughs> um, okay. My my ignorance on this. I'm I'm trying to learn. Yeah, okay, okay, no, good. it's okay. It's okay. But but yeah, on a 22-hour dive, you do also eat like um uh, little Tetra Pak drinking boxes with straws. It's the only time you'll see me with a plastic straw. <laughs> imagine, imagine a paper straw. In that yeah, I just shouldn't make it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you could still eat things like you know, easily chewable, meltable things. Um, although I did have a dive partner who took too big a bite out of a Snickers bar underwater once and was just like suddenly chewing very, very fast. Oh and I could God. see it in his eyes like, oh my God, I got to breathe. Oh <laughs> so when you're down there, the goals, of course, you know, are just, I'm sure, just truly just exploration of places humans have never been. What are you looking for? 
Well, I'm often working with a, a scientific colleague who is not a cave diver. And so I become their eyes and hands in, in the environment. I mean, we think of caves as literally museums of natural history because they hold so much information. And sometimes I'm working with like global, um, you know, paleoclimatologists who are looking at Earth's ancient climate. Sometimes I'm working with archaeologists and paleontologists, and we're looking at bones or the remains of ancient civilizations. Sometimes I'm working with biologists who, speleobiologists, cave biologists, or astrobiologists, because the life that we find in caves is, is perhaps something that might closely resemble what we would find in outer space, since this stuff all lives in the darkness of, uh, of underwater caves. So sometimes it's with scientists and sometimes it's also just testing technology. So I'm working with engineers and testing survey technology, life support technology, and developing new tools for both underwater and aerospace applications. What is your most memorable discovery? Mm, oh, boy. Um, I think, you know, my most memorable and maybe consequential project was back in the late 1990s when I was working with the U.S. Deep Caving Team, and we did the first accurate three-dimensional mapping of any subterranean space, dry or wet. But you know what we did was was monumental. We we mapped about forty-two thousand feet of cave passageways, all very deep, using this very high-tech mapping device that my colleague Dr. Bill Stone had developed. And uh, the results of that have have kind of continued to be developed for the last couple decades plus. And, uh, and now that device is a fully autonomous robot mapper that's destined for space. So um, I want to take you out of the water for a second. How do you how do you decompress after these high stakes <laughs> adventures? Are you are you gardening? What are you doing? I, I imagine you garden is my yeah, is my it's, thought. it's funny you use that that term because decompress is something we actually do underwater. Okay. <laughs> As we come back to the surface. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. yeah, that was actually not a pun intended yeah. by any. Also, very quickly, you I saw it in a video, but you're like, let's take a deep dive into my life. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that That's pun, right. Jill. That was a good pun. <laughs> Sorry. It. Okay. How do you decompress? We're going to intentionally use it now. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm still, uh, I'm an artist, so I'm always creating. Um, I Like I paint, I draw, I, I, I sew. I mean, during COVID, I picked up like leather working and started making uh, some of my own like shoes and a backpack and stuff like that. So uh, I, it's it's creating or or being outdoors. I mean, my husband and I cycling is our, our second love cycling and paddling. And, you know, there isn't a day that passes where we're not out for a nice long walk or hike somewhere, too. So. Yeah. Will I uh, ever pass you in Gatineau Park or do you do you stick more to Lake Carlton Place? Yeah, no, no, you'll pass us in, Car in uh, Gatineau sometime. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the best. What are you afraid of? Oh, lots. I'm afraid every time I go diving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, people erroneous, erroneously think that I'm fearless. I'm not fearless. I mean, if I was fearless, I, I wouldn't have survived my career. <laughs> um, I, I've got to be afraid every time I go diving so that I properly assess and, and mitigate risks. It's, it's the decisions that you make before the dive and the headspace before the dive that, you know, affects the successful outcome. I mean, you know, more than 90 to 95 percent of technical diving accidents were, you know, traced back to root causes that were a decision the person made before they got in the water. 
So that that's kind of eye opening. And other than diving, what are you afraid? Like public? I know you're a speaker and you're very good at it, but does that scare you? No, I love speaking. I, I love, yeah, I love kind of coming up for the for a talk and finding the right message, whether it's for, you know, a group or a you know, corporation or whatever that that's fun for me. That's, that's problem solving. Some of my least favorite things, like, like, I don't like, like, I don't like speed. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. You like, like meticulously, like going at your own, at your own pace. Yeah. yeah. I like human powered stuff. I like things that I can control. So I, I don't like, like you're never gonna see me bungee jumping. I know, <laughs> honestly, like people think that cave divers are adrenaline junkies and that that we're likely to be, you know, skydivers and bungee jumpers and whitewater rafters and stuff like that. But I don't like things that are outside of my control. So I guess that's the stuff that scares me. <laughs> I love asking people like you, like George Karunas, who have explored parts of the world that no one else has seen. My question is. How has your experience played into the fact of you wanting to protect our world and what we're doing to our world? Like, you know, going back to even the zebra mussels, right? Well, I recognize that that I have this opportunity to go to places that nobody's ever gone before mm-hmm. and to bring back stories um, that that offer good, you know, science communication to the rest of the planet. Because because I I'm kind of the canary in the coal mine. Like I I I'm swimming through the veins of Mother Earth, and and this is the sustenance that we all rely on. That that we need for agriculture, for wildlife, for every industry that gives us this, you know, modern lifestyle. So, water, fresh water in particular, is incredibly important. And and I want to be the voice that lets people know that. You know, the ocean begins beneath your feet, no matter where you live. Even if you're in the middle of the country, nowhere near a coastline, things that you do on the surface of the earth will be returned to you to drink. So, you know, we have to be responsible stewards of the landscape and therefore the water as well. What's on your bucket list moving forward? What's Or can you share what's what do some of your next explorations look like? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a bucket list because I sort of feel like I'm I'm living the best life I can every day. And and sure, there are places I'd love to go given the opportunity, but like I haven't been to Galapagos yet. <laughs> I'd like to go there. Um, but in the meantime, I'm I'm most excited about some work I'm doing really close to home in, in Canada's longest underwater cave system. And um, I've been traveling so much in the last year for my work that I'm, I, I am, you know, vowing to stay home as much as possible this year. And really take a, a you know hard effort at, at my work in that cave system. I'm glad that you have the opportunity to do that and looking forward to seeing what that looks like for you. Uh, you also have a book, Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. I'm sure that was a labor of love too, because I'm sure writing a book is not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. And when it's your own story, it's terrifying. <laughs> Maybe that's what scared me writing my own book. <laughs> And we're and I'm sure people can yeah. pick that up wherever, right? And oh yeah, yeah Amazon yeah. and small bookstores everywhere. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I'm working on a, another one now, so uh, that that that's uh, that'll be a big part of my year too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, you give any kind of hint on that? Uh, well, it's still taking shape, so it, okay. so it's still early. But I'm I'm working on a like another adult nonfiction and and another kids book as well. The kids <gasps> book is going to be called Iceberg Explorer. So. Oh, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jill, 
I could ask you a million questions about things that I know nothing about, but um, you are excellent. Hopefully I can get to see you speak soon, maybe at the at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, wherever you're going. But thank you so much for joining me. This has been eye-opening and I really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, go to letstakethisoutside.ca. looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.